Welcome to The Wondering Mind, a mental health podcast. I'm your host, Emily Elizabeth. My goal with this show is to help you get out of your own head and step into your full potential. Each week, I'll either be sharing my own personal story or I'll have a guest on providing you with their insight, perspective, and story to show you that anything is possible if you work hard and put your wondering mind to it. So let's get started. Wondering Mind podcast. I'm your host, Emily Elizabeth. Today, I have Dr. Kayla Marmoros. She is a mental health professional. I'm going to talk to her today about all things anxiety, and we're going to hear a little bit about her and her story, why you got started in the industry, in the mental health profession. Yeah. Take it away. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you, Emily, for having me on the podcast. I really love doing these. And I'm so happy I stumbled upon your account. I think it's amazing. So I am a licensed mental health counselor, as Emily had stated, and I'm practicing right now in Miami, Florida. So I have a therapy practice here where I see children, adolescents, and young adults kind of just struggling with day-to-day emotional and behavioral issues. I'm sure we'll get a little bit more into that later. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, originally. So I have lived in Miami, for about 10 plus years. With a few year break in between, I spent some time in New York as well. And in both places, I was able to, you know, further my career in schooling and also practicing and seeing all different kinds of clients and individuals, which has been really awesome kind of for my experience. So I did a master's in mental health counseling in Miami. Following that, what happens in the professional counselor world is you have to obtain licensure hours. So after my master's degree, I worked in a private practice where I saw clients weekly and I gained a certain amount of hours that allowed me to be licensed. So following my licensure, I kind of said to myself, I'm kind of ready to go back to school. I always kind of wanted to get that next level of knowledge and information really just to best help, you know, the individuals I was working with. My master's degree really focused on counseling skills. So you're kind of learning the skills to apply in sessions. My PhD degree or my doctorate degree helped me really learn how to read and conduct research in the field. And I also was able to teach at the university that I was a student in as well. So it kind of allowed me to see this other side of the counseling field and just helped me kind of feel like a more well-rounded clinician, just understanding research and kind of knowing what's good research, what's bad research, and how to apply it in my client work. So I started off my undergraduate schooling in Miami, Florida, and kind of fell in love with it, you know, not too shabby, not much to complain about weather-wise, right? So I stayed down here and I pursued that master's degree until, you know, my PhD journey, which did take me out of state. But, you know, I, I ended up right back here to the place that I kind of fell in love with and, and first started really in the psychology field. That's awesome that you've been able to travel through this experience as well. What made you want to get into this field? I love that question because I love listening to podcasts and hearing other people's answers. I think that, you know, this is a field of obviously helping others. And for me, it's always kind of just been this 
inclination of mine to want to help others, but more than that, just want to understand what's going on in people's mind and why they might be doing the things that they're doing. So from a young age, you know, I was always kind of in the corner, observing the room, trying to understand what was going on in others' minds. And of course, as I got older, you know, I have encountered difficult times. Most recently, I had a friend lose a husband to suicide, you know, so we encounter kind of these tragic events that for me, has been horrifying in ways, but also has pushed me in this field to understand more, to understand better, to research more, to research better. So yeah, those events throughout life as well have just made me kind of more curious. The fact that there are people out there like you who take this on as a profession and make it their life's work to help other people on such a personal level is so commendable. There are so many different branches, if you will, on the tree of mental health. You do cognitive behavioral health therapy, correct? Yes. So first I'll start off just with a little bit of what CBT is, because there's so many kind of different treatments out there. It can be a little bit confusing. So CBT, as you said, stands for cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a therapeutic approach or a treatment that different counseling professionals use to address different clinical presentations, what we'll call. So it's been shown throughout research to be kind of the gold standard to treat a lot of different disorders and symptoms and challenges. CBT has shown to be very effective, especially when comparing it to other types of therapies. It's kind of this umbrella term, actually, that new therapies have recent, more recently have branched off of CBT to address specific disorders. The underlying idea, our framework behind CBT, is that our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors are all connected in some way. So I'll just give you kind of like a quick little example. Let's say that my friends didn't call me back when I called them to make plans. So if our first thought is, oh, my friend didn't call me back because they don't like me, that's going to lead me to feeling hurt and upset, you know, maybe insecure, and that's going to then affect my behaviors. Maybe I'm going to avoid them from now on. So it kind of shows this whole cycle of how our thoughts, our thought patterns about ourselves, about others, about the world, kind of create our feelings and our behaviors. So in CBT, what we do is we look at those thought patterns and we're able to kind of reframe them in some way to a more realistic thought. So, you know, maybe my friend didn't call me back because he was busy, you know, and that's going to then change our feelings and our behaviors to follow. So it's really interesting to keep in mind, research has shown that, especially with anxiety and depression, a lot of our internal dialogue or our thought patterns tend to be more negative. You know, we call them cognitive distortions. So sometimes they're not even actually fully accurate. You know, we see things in the worst light possible. We might catastrophize and, and anticipate the worst thing to happen. And they're not always fully true. So that is also going to affect our feelings and our behaviors. And CBT really works on kind of clearing that up. CBT is effective for children, adolescents, adults. It's a very common type of therapy that we kind of use across the board in terms of ages. To start at a young age would definitely be beneficial for children who are kind of struggling with some of these anxiety or depression symptoms that really might be interfering with their day-to-day -day life. 
you know, it's important in that case to start young because our brains are constantly kind of changing and they are neuroplastic, which means that any type of learning has the ability to kind of change their form and their function. So why not start earlier than later to kind of grab some of these coping skills and to learn that maybe some of our anxieties or our fears are not actually as big as they may seem in our head. It really is hard to keep on top of all these symptoms. Is this normal childhood or is this normal teen behavior, you know? And what I would recommend with that is obviously we definitely want to have those red flags in mind for some of those symptoms that might stand out. But the way you can tell that if it's really kind of problematic is if it is interfering with day-to-day functioning. So is your child not waking up and going to school? Is your child not sleeping through the night every night? Are they unable to separate from you where they can can live this kind of normal life? So you want to look at kind of the functioning. And also, if there's ever any confusion with some of these symptoms, you can always take your child to a psychologist who can look at the different things going on and tease out, is this actually a problem or is this something that's kind of within normal limits at the developmental age? That all makes sense. The separation anxiety, that's always been something that I've tried to figure out. I would go to summer camp and I would be gone for a month. I would go and I would always have fun, but the getting over that mental hump of leaving my family and the fear of missing out on what my friends were doing, it would turn into a full-blown panic attack more than once. So, you know, generalized anxiety disorder, it can be kind of this general day-to-day worry, right? And that can certainly pop up. I think any anxieties can really coincide. You know, sometimes when we see more specifically that the anxiety is occurring only within separation or only in social situations, we might narrow that diagnosis down to just that disorder. So separation anxiety disorder or social anxiety disorder. But it's certainly not uncommon for someone who has high anxiety levels and generalized anxiety disorder to feel anxious during any type of kind of transition or change. So when you were going to camp, that was a big transition for you. And that was something that, you know, you kind of had to warm up to all along, actually, what you were doing was really good to treat that separation anxiety disorder. What we do is we want to expose individuals to their fearful kind of events. So being separated from mom or being separated from home so they can start to see that in the end, everything's okay. That's so true. It's just, it's so unfortunate that so many people have such a difficult time making that transition Even if they've done it before, doing the same type of thing again, still that just debilitating anxiety that comes along with that transition before it happens is just really hard. It's definitely hard. I think all of us, you know, might struggle with that to some extent, some degree more than the other. But, you know, people who have that kind of really debilitating or heightened or excessive anxiety, sometimes we call it unhelpful anxiety usually kind of overestimate a threat and they underestimate their ability to cope with it. So, you know, specifically in separation anxiety, especially with kids, we'll see them report, what if I lose my parent? What if I never see my parent again? So there's this kind of excessive fear. It's an overestimation of a threat 
And then they also think, what will I do? I don't know how to deal with this. And that kind of combination of those two factors result in this spiraling, crippling, what do I do kind of anxiety. Absolutely. And I think that stems from when we were in the caveman days. That's how we were wired to learn how to survive. And what you're describing is really that more helpful anxiety, right? So like you said, cavemen, when they saw a bear, they needed that anxiety to let them know, I need to get out of here. This is scary. I need those alarm bells to be going off in my mind. The problem is with this excessive or unhelpful anxiety, our alarm bells are going off and they're false alarms. They're telling us we need to be so worried about something that we don't really need to be that worried about. You know, in therapy, we try to help tame those false alarms and we kind of look at the evidence for and against if this will actually happen. But there's different ways to kind of work with those those cognitive thoughts. I know it's a deeper rooted issue if you have these alarm bells going off every single day, like all the time. Their tactics or ways that someone can benefit from using certain tactics throughout their day-to-day so that it can become a little more bearable? Absolutely. There's a, a few different things you can do. What I like the best is even when I have an anxious thought that kind of pops up, right? Sometimes these thoughts are really automatic, especially if we're so used to feeling anxious, they kind of just come up. I write it down. I write the thought down and I actually take a step back and look at the thought. And I always do this thing. I put the thought on trial. So I'm looking at evidence for my thought that my thought is true or will come true and evidence against my thought. And oftentimes I find, and I find clients find that when we're really anxious, we tend to kind of distort our thought in some way. Everything seems so much worse than it actually is. And I find more evidence against this anxious thought. So it automatically kind of helps me take a step back and calm down and and be able to reframe my thought in a more realistic way. You know, this won't be so bad, or maybe this isn't bad at all. Maybe there's a way I can even kind of solve this problem. Some other things I do is if I'm feeling anxious or I have someone who's feeling anxious just in the moment, if they're kind of getting short of breath or you know, we feel our heart race when we're anxious. So all these physiological kind of effects, just deep breathing. And I think a lot of people don't like hearing this because they're like, no, that's not really going to fix the actual issue. But what deep breathing does is, or something we called grounding techniques, is it's able to keep us in the present. Usually when we're anxious, we're, we're anticipating future events or we're thinking, what if? If we can use a breathing technique or a grounding technique that helps keep us grounded in the present moment, we're shifting where we are, right? We're not in the future anymore. We're just in the present. So one of the breathing techniques that I like to use, this is so funny. I used this yesterday called four, seven, eight breathing. So what you want to do is you want to inhale slowly through your nose for four seconds, kind of like a slow count of four. When I do this with kids, I have them pretend they're holding like a hot chocolate or something that smells good, you know, and you're smelling it in for four seconds, and then you hold your breath once you get to kind of the top for seven seconds. So it can seem long, but what it does is it's really calming our nervous system down. So you're holding it for seven seconds, and then you're blowing out. So maybe you're blowing on the hot cocoa, right? Or if it's a candle, you're blowing out for eight seconds very slowly. 
so that's just kind of a quick way to calm us down. I usually do it at least three times in a row. Again, that just has us focusing on our breath. We're not focused on any other thoughts that are kind of jumbled in our mind and we're just coming back to the present. You know, then if you still have that anxious thought pop up after, then you can kind of go back to, let me write this down. Let me look at the evidence for and against this. You know, then you can kind of do some other work on that if that's still there. I think that's really helpful. And it's funny that you say that a lot of people kind of shun the whole breathing techniques. Yeah. And I was them for a long time because I, as being such an anxious person, I think something, at least for me, that goes along with that is being very impatient. I don't know if that's just my personality or if that's like a thing, but I would always want like a quick fix. I've recently started using certain breathing techniques and I've noticed, like you said, it helps. It kind of brings you back to the present moment and the whole ball of yarn that are your thoughts kind of just go away. I mean, listen, even as a therapist, breathing techniques, when you hear them, you're so anxious in the moment. And like you said, I think it is common for anxious people to want a quick fix of anything. You know, we're kind of like, go, 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 go. You know, sometimes the breathing seems a little tedious. I think kind of in those desperate moments, though, where we're really kind of seeking, what can I do? What can I try? And that's how I've discovered it. When I've been really anxious, I'm like, let me just try this. And it really does kind of bring you back to the present and calm you down enough to kind of see more clearly. And then you can kind of work on that anxious thought if it's still there. So another thing I think is super important to kind of dive into is social anxiety. When I was a child, I was like super outgoing and loved being around peers and people. And then I noticed again, like as I got older, it it shifted. I actually listened to a podcast that you did, Driving Minds podcast. Yes. You know, you said that when people kind of think of social anxiety that aren't very familiar with it or don't experience it themselves, mm-hmm. they think of it as just shy. Yeah. And that's not the truth, not the case. There are, again, those debilitating thoughts of basically just insecurities of what these people are going to think of me and am I going to say something stupid and am I going to feel super uncomfortable? And can you elaborate a little bit on your knowledge of social anxiety? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thanks for listening to that episode. That was a really fun one to do as well. Social anxiety, you know, it's probably makes sense maybe that you felt a little more kind of free in your social interactions and secure as you were younger. We often see this pop up, you know, around adolescence. It's really common because you're just being thrown out into more social situations. You know, you're also developing in ways. You're going through puberty, there's hormones racing, you're comparing yourself to other people. So it's it's quite common that we see this in that adolescent time. I think the most important thing is really what you took away from that episode was that this is not just being shy. There's just a big misconception with it. So that social anxiety is really when we're preoccupied or focused on kind of what you said, what others think of us and how they're viewing us. Oftentimes in these situations, we almost feel like there's a spotlight on us. It's called spotlight effect. So we almost feel like there's a spotlight shining right on us and everyone can see all of our flaws and they can almost see what we're thinking and see if we're getting embarrassed and, you know, we're afraid that they're judging us. So we're really afraid and nervous that we are going to have scrutiny 
by other people. So it's really kind of like this fear-based disorder. As I mentioned in the other podcast, that all anxiety disorders really are. You know, there's this, it stems from this fear. And in this situation, we're afraid that we're going to be judged. So I work with individuals how to turn that spotlight off, how to just also focus in the present moment. So sometimes I give a tip, like if you're socially anxious at an event and, you know, you're looking around and you feel everyone's looking at you, focus on a task focus on setting the table or helping doing something where you can focus your thoughts on your task instead of inward kind of on yourself. Social anxiety works the same way as any other anxiety, just how you kind of expose yourself to camp. You want to expose yourself to situations where you can start to kind of get acclimated and used to it and see that everything's okay in the end. When we avoid, our anxiety only grows. It's just easy to avoid usually because you know, why not? We don't want to feel our anxiety. We cancel plans last minute. We might not show up for, you know, a work event because we feel comforted in the moment. But what it's really doing is creating this kind of vicious cycle where that anxiety is going to pop right back up again. You know, maybe we're anxious that we didn't go. Maybe we feel we're losing kind of some of our social skills. And when that anxiety pops right back up again, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to avoid because it's comfortable in the moment. So we always want to make sure that we are pushing ourselves in some ways, you know, maybe even one or two events that we attend, we show up for ourselves and, and we can prove our anxious thoughts kind of wrong. That's excellent advice and something that I've personally been trying to work on and implement like throughout my social media. It's just so important to just kind of push through those tough moments because mm-hmm. like you said, it proves to yourself that you can do it. Right. And by continuously showing up for yourself, it helps you gain confidence. It proves yourself wrong, but in a good way. Absolutely. Um, and it kind of lessens that anxiety. I mean, someone that deals with anxiety on the day to day, it's never going to go away a hundred percent. It's just whether or not you're willing to put forth the effort to make yourself more comfortable and to be all in with it in the sense of that you're completely aware with what's going on and you're willing to work on it every single day. I love that you said that. I always tell people that come in, which can sound scary, but it's not when you break it down, is that the goal is not to get completely rid of anxiety, right? Because we even identified in this talk that anxiety sometimes gives us correct alarm bells, right? Like sometimes we need that anxiety. It also helps us be motivated at times. It actually helps us get out of the bed in the morning sometimes. So the goal is not to get rid of it completely, nor is that possible. But we just, like you said, want to make sure that we're identifying coping skills to kind of minimize that really harmful or excessive anxiety. Sometimes that could be a day-to-day kind of journey. I also think it's important to continuously talk about it with close friends and family. For the longest time, I was so ashamed and embarrassed Mm -hmm. of how Mm -hmm. I was feeling all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I would drink, like I would go out and party and just pretend like everything was fine and okay, which would make it worse. But being able to talk about it as much as possible starts to ease the burden and other people will be able to understand that this isn't something that's just like a normal 
anxiety, like it's a little bit more serious and they'll be able to, to look at you in a different light and help you in different ways. So it's not always easy to do that. Do you have any advice on one that deals with chronic anxiety or any type of anxiety on a day-to-day, how they would go about conversing with someone else that doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So, I mean, the first point is you, you brought up like drinking and partying and, you know, that is also another form of avoidance. So that just goes to show when we're avoiding this anxiety, the more we're kind of pushing back from it, it's going to grow in size. Was that still there or did it grow at all? Oh, it was terrible. Also, when you drink, you become dehydrated. And when you're dehydrated, your anxiety is the worst it could possibly ever be. And I didn't know that at the time. It was terrible. Then I began to acknowledge. And I think I was just so afraid to acknowledge, which a lot of people are. They just don't want to deal with another issue. They just continue to cope in negative ways. Yeah. So just like you said, like those, those negative coping skills, and you could kind of identify that as a form of avoidance. So I think what you said as just being free and kind of speaking out about it, you know, there's this old phrase that, you know, we don't think literally of, but you're as sick as your secrets. And I think that when we kind of keep some of our struggles completely to ourselves, right, it doesn't mean we need to shout them from the rooftops. But when we kind of keep them completely to ourselves, we attach shame with it, right? And you mentioned that word before. And so I think when we're able to kind of open up about it, as hard as it is, so even if it's to one person, even if it starts with just writing it down, even if it's just to yourself, coming to, to terms with it, it kind of helps us detach that shame. We, we can kind of start to view it in a different light. And like in your case with this podcast, you know, we can connect with others who might be struggling. Then we start to notice maybe others are kind of connecting with us and and hearing us. But it is nice to know that, you know, it's probably helping some other people out there. In answer to your question directly, like how can you talk to people about this? I think the first step is talking to yourself about it, kind of just laying it on the line, confronting it yourself and saying, okay, like I'm struggling with anxiety and that's okay. It's part of this is being human and it's okay to have emotions and feelings. And who can I identify as a trusted person in my life that, you know, I know doesn't hold any kind of judgment that I can just talk to about this and kind of start there. And I think that it's almost like a domino effect. Usually, you know, you see that, wow, I feel a little more free this anxiety is not holding me in chains anymore. I'm choosing to speak out about it. Absolutely. So I have one more thing that if you don't mind, I'd like to touch upon. Okay. Attention disorder. So it's crazy because when I was younger, I think elementary school, the anxiety started to really heighten and make a difference in my day-to-day life. You know, back then anxiety, all of this stuff wasn't like a thing. It was, but no one really talked about it. So my parents didn't know what was going on, much like a lot of parents to this day. So they treated me for ADD, thinking that that was the sole issue because I was having a lot of issue concentrating in school. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on just exactly how ADD coincides with generalized anxiety disorder? Yeah, that's also a really great question. So generalized anxiety disorder can have comorbid disorders or it can be comorbid with another disorder, right? So there's 
there can be high rates of that. And usually it's common with depression. You know, we often see a lot of depression that can come with anxiety as well. But ADHD is another one of those that we really have to be careful when we're kind of teasing out what is what. A lot of the symptoms for anxiety and for ADHD actually overlap. So you brought up a really good one, just struggling with attention. So actually a big kind of symptom in anxiety can be difficulty concentrating. It is common that we see kids, teachers might be quick to report, oh, I think there's kind of ADHD stuff going on here, you know, because that's kind of the hallmark symptom for ADHD. But we want to make sure that it's not actually something else that's presenting as ADHD. I think in answer to your question, you know, you certainly can have both. That's for sure. Other times, it might actually be that anxiety that's driving that ADHD presentation. So maybe it's not ADHD, but it's really that anxiety that kind of what's making you not be able to concentrate, you know, and kind of other symptoms that overlap. So in that case, having parents taking you to a psychologist, psychologists do evaluations and they're full of kind of different testing protocol and testing measures where they can carefully tease those things out. And again, maybe you do have both or maybe it's kind of just one or the other that's at play. My anxiety, I've noticed that that is a symptom in a sense, concentration, just kind of bouncing around from different tasks randomly throughout the day when I should just be focusing on one thing at a time. That's definitely important to have a professional kind of evaluate. Yeah. There's different therapies for for each of those. There's different medications for each of those. So you just want to make sure we know what we're kind of working with. If you have time, we did mention depression a little bit. Yeah. And that is another thing that I personally have suffered with. And with it being Mental Health Awareness Month, I think we should kind of touch upon all the major little things. So anxiety and depression, they kind of go hand in hand too. And it's crazy because... I've been treated for both throughout my entire life. Notice that when, like, say, like, I I took medication for a long time. I'm not currently on any medication. But when I was, I would notice that certain medications would make one better and not the other, which I guess it just depends on what you're taking. But even now, like, not being on anything, like, I've noticed it's like a teeter-totter almost. I can't seem to, like level them both out at the same time. I get what you're saying. I hear that a lot, actually, with clients. You know, one week we'll check in and the anxiety's up, and then next week the anxiety's down and the depression's up. So like you said, it's it's kind of like a balancing act. It's definitely difficult in, in the sense of just you're kind of trying to tame two different things, right, that come with different kind of symptoms and, and different things going on. It's, you know, it's a challenge, I think, Medication is definitely warranted in some, you know, situations, but we also need to keep in mind it's not the only answer, right? We want to, medication doesn't teach us coping skills. We can deal with symptoms, but we definitely want to make sure that we're practicing or, you know, turning to these coping skills that we can kind of try to work with in addition to meds or, like you said, being off meds. You know what I recommend is something that I started doing myself lately is in the morning, checking in with yourself. 
coming up with like three basic questions in the morning, nothing overwhelming, just like, how am I feeling today? How would I rate this today? You know, whether it's higher on anxiety or depression, what's a coping skill I can use throughout the day when this pops up? And then maybe even a fourth question I like to do is what are the intentions I set for myself today? And I'm careful. I never like to say, what are my expectations for the day? You know, you don't want to put too much pressure on yourself, but just a couple intentions for the day. So I think a good check-in in in the morning to just kind of be self-aware of what's rearing its head. Is it more of this anxiety? Is it more of this depression? And kind of turning back to the coping skills that you know that work for that. So keeping that in mind throughout the day, when it kind of pops up, you have that to turn to. You know, on the other end at night, then I like to do like a gratitude check-in. So you have your nighttime routine, you get into bed and kind of forcing yourself to list a few things that you feel gratitude for. Research has also shown that that's really helped with some of these emotional challenges such as depression. So just, it can be one of those tedious things it sounds like with breathing too, but we want to make sure that we give those things a shot. Yeah. Those are things that kind of keep me aligned. No, I'm glad that you brought the gratitude tip up because I've heard that numerous times and I've actually, I started journaling again recently and I've noticed that it's helped because I used to do it all the time back in high school and it really does help. Like if you don't have someone to vent to in that present moment, writing it down is also kind of just another avenue to get it out of your head Yes, and just like physical, just release in a way. But one thing that I've noticed when I've tried to do the gratitude thing is on the days where I'm feeling great, right? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to write down all the things I'm grateful for. But then on the days where I'm like depressed or like really anxious, I got nothing. How would you keep that going when you're still like stuck in that the negative yeah. mindset? That's a really good question. I think obviously on those days that we are feeling more of that depression, it's so hard for us or it feels so hard for us to dig down deep and and find things that we're grateful for. Like you mentioned, the whole point of it is shifting the mindset. So when we can kind of identify things that we have gratitude for in life, that gives us the ability to shift our mindset no matter what kind of mood we're in. I guess first kind of keeping in mind, especially after we talk today and whoever is listening, is that depression can definitely kind of shift our thoughts into a more negative thought pattern um, where we have more negative self-talk, keeping in mind that these thoughts are not always accurate fully, right? So when you sit down for your gratitude list and just say to myself, I know that I'm more depressed today and I'm having these negative thoughts and they're kind of overtaking, but underneath them, there are things throughout the day or even throughout my week that I, or just in my life that I can kind of bring back to the present moment that still make me grateful. So maybe in that moment, if you're not in the best mood, think about the last time that you were in a good mood. What during that day can you bring to mind that makes you grateful? Or, you know, maybe looking at pictures or things in your room or pulling out good memories, something that can kind of spark a more positive thought, you know, have you be able to readily identify something? I think it's just hard sometimes when you're in that mindset to want to like reflect because you're so annoyed with yourself that you're feeling so down and negative. But I think, again, it just reverts back to the pushing yourself, showing up for yourself and just kind of fighting through it and 
proving to yourself that like, Hey, like this is just a temporary state of mind. It's just how I'm feeling right now in this present moment. It's not going to last forever. Yeah. I guess that's where the gratitude comes in is where you just kind of bring yourself back to those moments of it's not all that bad. I do have these things to be grateful for. Right. And you just kind of answered the question perfectly. I think that you can even, maybe even your gratitude thought is that I'm grateful that this won't last forever. This is just kind of a temporary feeling, no matter how bad it feels. And I, I do think to some extent, it's okay some days to give yourself compassion and just let yourself feel. If every single night is really just treacherous to do this, and maybe one night you just have a night where you're like, you know what, I'm going to choose another avenue of self-care. The gratitude task is too difficult right now. You know, it's okay to venture off too. Everything works differently for everyone. So kind of keep that in mind as well. You never want to feel like you're really forcing yourself and then it doesn't help in the end. Just keep tabs on kind of what works for you. I mean, obviously the, the current situation we're all in just with the pandemic and social distancing and quarantining. I know that that can be really difficult for some people that do already have some mental health struggles and even for ones that don't. But just to keep in mind that, you know, it's okay if setbacks happen right now. Again, bring, you know, give yourself compassion. We're dealing with kind of this unprecedented situation and it's okay to feel a little anxious. It's okay to feel, you know, fearful and just be kind to yourself. We don't want to yell at ourselves for feeling this way. We don't want to kind of spiral ourselves further down, but just let yourself be. I think that's excellent words of wisdom and very important, even, you know, after this is all over with, just to constantly remember, just go easy on yourself. Everyone's fighting their own battles. Everyone's trying to figure it all out and survive. I think the more that we're able to just be transparent and open and talk about how we're feeling, I think honestly, the easier things will be along the way, truly. Thank you for joining me today. Where can our listeners find you on social media and your, you have a website too, correct? If they want to yeah. make an appointment or. Yeah. So I, again, I'm in Miami, Florida, but during actually even beyond this time, cause I'm licensed in New York as well. So anyone that's in New York, that's interested in teletherapy. So that's video therapy online. Um, I'm accepting clients in New York as well. So Florida, New York, you can find me through my website. It's just www.pillarpillarmindandbehavior.com. You can contact me through there. You can, you know, set up an appointment through there, read a little bit more about the different therapies that I offer. I also am on social media. My handle is pillar, P-I-L-L-A-R, mind and behavior. That's it. I can give uh, my phone number as well. My office line is 786-332-4340. So, you know, if any of this resonated with you today and, you know, you're you're kind of ready to open up and share and talk and, and gain some coping tools, please don't be hesitant to reach out. I know it's difficult, but here to support you through it all. And I hope that we could kind of encourage that today. Yes, thank you so much. And thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of the Wondering Mind podcast. Until next time, I hope you have a great day. 
Thank you for listening to the Wondering Mind podcast. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you wouldn't mind just taking a few moments and leaving us a review, letting us know what you think of the podcast. Also, feel free to follow us on Instagram at the Wondering Mind podcast and on Twitter at TWM podcast. <laughs>